chapter 13 for us this morning. John chapter 13. Previously, as we looked at verse 1, we extrapolated from that four attributes of love, this particular love that God has for His people, this divine love from the Lord, and this distinguished love, a special love that He has for His children, and it's an unending love. Love that does not end. Love to the full extent. As we see that in John 13, we see again in verse 1 that this is before the feast of the Passover. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let us pray once again. Father, I come before you this morning. I need your help. I need the help of the Holy Spirit. God, we would ask that you would, by your power, engage our hearts and our minds to your word. Help me to be faithful to your text this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We see, and we will look at the beginning of what Jesus does here for the disciples. He washes their feet. This practice has a long Old Testament tradition. Usually foot washing was a job for slaves. Such a position would be looked down upon by Jews and Gentiles. It was part of hospitality in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament. Water was stored in a vessel or a basin, and someone would grab it. The the slave, the servant, would, would use this, and there would be another container underneath. And the guests would come, and they would use the water, let it drain, or use the um, basin. The water would come out. It would go over the person's feet and the basin underneath, the water container underneath, would collect the dirty water. And then a towel would be used to wipe their feet. Washing of one's feet was a cultural practice. It was a beneficial practice in a location that was dusty and dirty with unpaved roads. Makes sense. Most people wore sandals and did not have the luxury of daily showers. Feet would get dirty, stay dirty, and may not have the greatest odor after a period of time. It made sense to have guests who came to your house be served by the way of having their feet washed, especially before a meal. Uh, that was eaten at a low table with feet extended outward. 
So feet were very much uh, in the forefront. You could see them, walk around them, you're eating, and there you have feet as well. It makes sense. Jesus used this cultural and beneficial practice as a teaching tool for the disciples, as a way to explain spiritual inward cleansing, as we shall see. What does not make sense is to put, to put it kindly and to put it bluntly, is to have foot washing added to the New Testament church today as a ceremonial ordinance. There are numerous reasons why we should not take it, take Jesus' actions and his statements in verse 14 as uh, him establishing another ceremony or ordinance. In verse 14, again, it says, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of one another. Jesus is not commanding the, the disciples to wash another's feet as if that was the extent of his teaching. Instead, he was teaching to do service as he does service. Serve as Jesus has served. Servanthood, servant leadership. It has to do with our heart disposition. It has to do with how we serve one another. few reasons. Foot washing was part of what was done at a house for guests. Not in a Wednesday night service to show one another that we care about them. Foot washing does not symbolize or represent a redemptive historical event, which baptism in the Lord's Supper does. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, says, baptism in the Lord's Supper were clearly symbolic actions. But when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, it was clearly functional, not merely symbolic, and that it met an ordinary human need of the day. There was dirty feet. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two ordinances of the New Testament church. And we get to participate in one of them today. And praise God, Lord willing, in a few weeks or a couple weeks, we get to uh, be witness to the other ordinance of the church, baptism. These are the two ordinances of the New Testament church continued on in the early church. There is not evidence that the apostles practiced foot washing as an ordinance. There are more reasons, but it would be most prudent for us to move on. Verse 2, we see this was during the supper. They were in this room that Jesus arranged. This, uh, that he had someone else arranged. This was a borrowed room for the Passover dinner. No homeowner there, uh, no homeowner servant to wash the feet of those who came in. We notice something interesting from the get-go if we consider this. The supper began. It was ongoing, which means the disciples had sat down. And Jesus with them. And Jesus gets up from the supper that had already began and washed the feet of the disciples. They were already situated. They were already participating. Most likely the the basin, the water, and the towel were at the entrance of this room that they were in. There was... 
um, no one to wash the feet as they came in. And we do not see any of the disciples taking the initiative to do this. The meal started. Jesus got up and took the posture of a servant and washed the disciples' feet. Leon Morris points out something very important when he says that when the washing of the feet took place at the meal, it took place then, not on the arrival. It shows that it was an action undertaken deliberately and not simply the usual act of courtesy as one would have when they came to one's house. So we'll see the cleansing or washing is significant. The disposition of Jesus Christ is significant. This sacrificial servanthood. And we see that the contrasts are piercing. So we see first and foremost the conflicting motives. The conflicting motives. During the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot the son of Simon to betray him. That is contrasted with verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. So we have a contrast of Satan and his motives, of the devil and his motives, devil, Satan, same devil, and Jesus, the Son of God. The way of Satan and his followers and the way of Jesus Christ and his mode of uh, his model of self-sacrifice. Judas was moved in his heart by Satan. Jesus was moved by the love of God and doing the will of God. Judas was prideful. Jesus was humble. Judas was motivated by a monster, Satan. Jesus was motivated in mercy by God. An important side note on this verse, specifically verse 2, which some scholars have what is called a more difficult reading of this text. They would say the reading would go like this. The devil had already made up in his mind that Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, would betray him. Here in the NSB, during the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So there's a little bit of a difference in the, uh, the way it was, could be translated. But the guilty party would be both. We say, well, who is guilty then? Who's guilty of the betrayal? Uh, Satan is, yes, and, and Judas absolutely as well. The execution of Satan's plan, we see verse 27, After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. So we can't let Judas off the hook? By any stretch, by any means. He knew exactly what he was doing. Let's really ponder this. Jesus was alone with his disciples, teaching them, serving them, yet one of them was not a true disciple. Being with Jesus for approximately three years, day in, day out, hearing him teach, seeing these miracles. And Jesus called one of them, John chapter 6, verse 70, a devil. He called him out and said, this is who one of you is a devil. The devil was in the details of trying to destroy Christ and his followers. This has been true since the garden. 
And Satan continues to wreak havoc today. His influence is evident throughout the conflicts in Scripture, such as Cain and Abel, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and, and Egypt and Israel, or Haman's evil plot against Esther and the Jewish people. The devil directly and indirectly involved in evil. The goal, as, as Joe Beakey put it, is always the same, to, to wipe out the chosen seed. And before the present account of the Passover, Passover meal, Judas had made a deal with the devil and the devil's pawns to betray Jesus. And I'll read the text for you, Luke 22. We're going to go there in a a bit. Luke 22, verse 3, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priest and officers how he might betray him to them. Consider Judas knew what he was doing, knew he was going to betray Jesus, and yet he sat at the table anyway and let Jesus come in and disciple and wash the feet of the disciples. Let he was to be a part of that. Judas was already set on what he was going to do. Satan had an open door into his heart. And we will see more of this as we go along. So we see the conflicting motives. There is a contrast there. An obvious contrast there. And then we see Jesus clothed with humility. John chapter 13 in verse 3 through 5. Clothed with humility, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the base and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which, with which he was girded. Again, another verse about Jesus knowing. Jesus Knowing, we just saw this in verse 1. Jesus knowing that the hour had come. Jesus knew uh, the Father gave all things into His hands. Jesus knew that He was going back to the Father. Speaking of Jesus' divine power and knowledge and control. Even the betrayal was in His power. Jesus was in control of the situation at all times. He was never outside of control or out of control. These few verses set up the scene for what Jesus was about to do. So we learned about Jesus' love, his particular love for his disciples. Verse 1. We find in verse 2 that we find that the devil does not miss an opportunity to attempt to thwart the plan of God. Judas, influenced by the devil, was in the midst of of true disciples, yet he being a pretender, a false convert, a deceiver, willingly and knowingly betrayed Jesus Christ. Verse 3 reminds us that Jesus knew who he was, knew that he was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Messiah, yet will take the posture of a servant and wash the feet of his 
disciples. He got up from the supper, observable by all who were in the room. He laid aside his garments, his kingly robes, as it were. He laid aside his his outer robe, just most likely wearing a loincloth like a slave would. Took off his outer robe, took a towel, and girded himself. This verb, laying aside, is the same verb as in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, where it says that he laid down his life. Taking a towel as he girded himself. This long towel. Able to gird oneself, wrap it around yourself, and still have this cloth left over to which you could use to wash someone's feet. He poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. You see that word girded repeated again. Showing us emphasis. Jesus stooped down and used what he was girded with or clothed with to minister to the, to the disciples. Clothed in humility. Perhaps other scriptures may immediately come to our minds. In Philippians 2, 6 and 7, he existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 5, again, Peter was here. He was here. He witnessed this. And then Peter later on would write 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Peter says to clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let us not miss these teachable moments here for us that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. Jesus was clothed with humility as he was washing the feet of the disciples. He laid, he's majesty. He is the son of God. He lays aside, as it were, his kingly robes and took up the garbs of a servant. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life excuse me, a ransom for many. Now John does not record everything. Excuse me. John does not record everything that happened that evening at the Passover meal. So we'll look at Luke chapter 22. Let's go to Luke chapter 22. We find other details about the supper. Look at verse 1. I'll read quickly. Now the feast of the unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then 
came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? He said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not eat of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, is, this cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going, to, going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to discuss amongst themselves which of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there also arose a dispute among them as which one of them was to be regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, but those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it's not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the younger and the leader like the servant. Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you, just as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with, with you I'm ready to go to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. So here we have more details of what's going on. We have the actual institution of the Lord's Supper by the Lord as he has as he does this and moves forward the new covenant, this New Testament ordinance, the Lord's table or communion. And we see verse 24, there was a dispute amongst the disciples. Here Jesus is with them. They're disputing of who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And then there's specific statements by Jesus related to service. The point here, this discussion in Luke happened during the supper. Jesus also got up during the supper to wash the disciples' feet. Likely during this conversation after verse 27. So here they are saying, who's going to be greatest? And arguing about it. And Jesus gets up and he washes their feet. Feet. I am among you as the one who serves. 
while Jesus showed them that true, what true humility was in greatness. He washed their feet, not as a rite, not as a sacrament or ordinance for the church, but as an example of humility and service, as a preview to the cross. The outward religious person can, can muster up some humility, can show humility to a point, whereas Jesus is the example of humility. He is clothed with humility. And then we see there is, as we go back to John 13, this correction and instruction. A correction and instruction. Oftentimes when we see Peter chime in, Peter speak up, a correction is at hand by the Lord. He came into Simon Peter, verse 6 and 7. He said to him, Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? No mention of anyone else saying anything before Peter does. Perhaps they were shocked that the Lord, whom has done these miracles, who had healed people, who had brought Lazarus out of the tomb and brought him to life, and here he is washing their feet. They must have been stunned. What could they say? Silence probably filled that room until Jesus got to Peter. Lord, do you wash my feet? The way the words are put in the Greek here show an emphatic contrast. Um, as, as you and my are together, these two words, you and my. So you, my feet to wash? That's the emphasis. Peter may have, been, may have moved his feet so quickly, like a, a ticklish man getting a pedicure or something, moved his feet So quickly when Jesus came, you, my feet to wash? Being impulsive and impetuous as he was, he spoke up. But Jesus responds, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. After these things, Peter, you will understand. Well, when is that? When is the after of these things? Well, we see there's a partial explanation of why he washed their feet in verse 12, as Lord willing, we will look at next Lord's Day. But a deeper understanding will be given after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 12, verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that, there, that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. They will understand because the Holy Spirit would teach them these things, illuminate their mind. Peter did not understand. Jesus says, you will have understanding hereafter. Oftentimes, we do not know what's going on in our life. When we're in a trial or whatever it is, or we don't understand what God is doing, sometimes down the road we understand. A place or a season, a struggle, 
a calling that has been laid upon us. It doesn't have to be something that we're struggling with, but a blessing or a calling. And we just do not understand, Lord, what is happening? And the Lord in times will show His hand. He'll show the silver linings. And later on we will see and we'll say, Oh, I see why, Lord. I see why you did these things. Just as a way of application for us. And then Peter continues, even after Jesus says, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. So Jesus is saying, there is a purpose for what I am doing here, Peter. There's a reason for this. But Peter says anyway, verse 8, never shall you wash my feet. A strong double negative in the Greek, no way, no how, no, never, not going to happen. You are not washing my feet. Again, never mind that Jesus just mentioned there was the significance of what he was doing. Amazing, Peter's response. Richard Phillips says, Peter was not yet ready to patiently await the unfolding of Christ's purpose. With his characteristic inconsistency, Peter was too humble to allow Jesus to wash his feet, but proud-hearted enough to rebuke his master's actions. It seems that Peter is not taking, not thinking of the spiritual aspect of what was going on, but instead focused on the physical, physical aspect of what was happening. But Jesus answered, and he says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And here we have the, the switching or the turning of the corner to something spiritual, something that we do not want to miss here. You will have no part with me. He says, you will have no share with me, no share in my inheritance. You will not enter into my inheritance. If I, says the Lord, if I do not wash you, you will not have a part with me. Apart from being washed free from one's sins, you cannot be one of Christ's own. Jesus is the one who must wash you. Leon Morris puts it this way, Jesus was about to die, to die the atoning death that meant cleansing for his people. There is no other way of being Christ's than receiving the cleansing he received to bring if he does not wash us this way. We have no part with him. Christ will cleanse all who will trust in him and all who trust in him have been cleansed. For it is by repentance from sin and, and trust in Jesus Christ that a person will be cleansed from their sin. So Peter responds, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and, and my head. Peter goes from one extreme to the other. Never will you wash my feet to, oh, give me a full bath. Wash me completely. Telling Jesus what Jesus will never do then telling Jesus to do it Peter's way. Peter must have been terrified of being separated from Jesus. 
and wanting to be sure he was clean. Don't just wash my feet, but wash all of me then. As Peter was gaining further and further understanding. As we understand, sometimes we can be uh, overly harsh on Peter, or overly harsh on Thomas, but oftentimes we say, well, that sounds just like me, or that sounded just like me five years ago, or whatever it is. So there was conflicting motives, as Jesus, though, was clothed with humility. And then there was correction and instruction. Sometimes we need both, and there was both there for Peter. But Jesus speaks of being completely clean. Jesus speaks of being completely clean. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Jesus, of course, is speaking of spiritual cleansing. The one who has been bathed is completely clean. Like the leper that that went to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus came down from the mountain. Large crowds followed him and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately he was fully clean. So when one comes to Jesus Christ for salvation, he cleanses them, he cleanses them completely and fully. It's like a leper. The leper didn't come and, and then he was partially clean. He still had leper, leprosy over his foot and his hand. He said, oh, well, you know, I'm partially cleaned here. I'll just go on and see the next guy, see if he can clean the rest of me off. No, he was completely clean. And as us, as spiritual lepers, before we come to Christ, we come and we get completely completely cleaned by him. It is evident that Jesus is speaking not about physical dirt, but spiritual filthiness, sin, and the need for sinners to be cleansed from it. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3? He spoke of the internal cleansing, a part As a part of salvation, John chapter 3, verse 5, Truly, truly, Jesus says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This water, this inner cleansing of one's soul, being spiritually washed, water being used as a metaphor for the Spirit of God's work in regeneration. And wind is another metaphor of the irresistible power of the Holy Spirit in conversion. In John 13 and in John 3 with Nicodemus, these both harken back to the Old Testament book of of Ezekiel. Where Ezekiel called people to be reconciled to God. I'll just read one verse for you from Ezekiel 36, 25. As the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from your idols. So think about that in in conversion. God sprinkles clean water on you. You will be clean. He washes us completely. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. The idols that you followed before, no longer will you follow them. I will cleanse you from all of this. Christian, you are 
completely clean. He is saying to the disciples, as he uses the illustration, uses the foot washing as a way to illustrate that it is he that cleanses sinners from the filthiness of their sin. Those who turn from their sin turn to Jesus Christ, coming to him by faith, receive a once for all cleansing of their soul that is permanent. Jesus says to his followers, you are clean, you are completely clean. Just as the leper was cleansed by Christ, so sinner, you have been cleansed by Christ, washed in his blood. Ephesians tells us, Christ also loved the church and he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Completely clean. Yet, we have a collision with corruption. We have collisions with corruption. Continually, we have collisions in our life, do we not? Sometimes it's just a side collision. Sometimes it's head-on collision. But let us not be mistaken. If Christians here this morning, you are completely clean because of who Christ is and what He has done on your behalf. You have been bathed. You only need to now wash your feet. The imagery is of a man going to a Passover feast. He already washed at home, but took a shower in our vernacular. Yet when he gets to the supper, he walks on this dirt road to get to the supper. His feet get dirty because of the dusty paths, because of the dirt that he walks through. But in order to come to the table, he needs to have his his feet washed. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking of the car wash that we go to sometime in winter. You go there because the, the salt, the dirt, uh, what's left of the snow, the ice is all over the bottom of the car and it's on the windows and the, the, it's dusty and, and all of that. And you go through the car wash and you try to do it as quickly as you can if you're doing it by yourself so that way you only spend the $3. So you move real quick. You get as much off of it as you can. Or if you are really feeling um, like you want to spend some money, you go through the, uh, the one that's automated or whatnot. And then you get out and you look, wow, the car is completely clean. It looks brand new. And then you leave parking lot, you get to your house, and it's dirty on the bottom all over again. Some roads to my house are dirtier than others. They're dirt roads. One dirt road in particular, potholes, dirt roads. You get completely, your car will get completely dirty going there. But if you want to save two or three minutes off your time, you go down that road. There's other roads that, there's like six ways to my house, but the other roads, not as much. As Christians, we are completely clean. We have, God has saved us, yet in the paths of life, we get dirt on our feet. We live in a dirty world. We have been made clean. We have people who have been washed, but we live in a dirty world. Our feet get soiled by the paths we take 
in a sin-cursed, God-hating world. Some paths we take, our feet get more dirty than other paths. There's not a Christian alive in this world that does not have in his life at times some dirt on his feet. Unfortunately, sometimes some of us will go through what is like a Tough mutter race, I think it's called, where you, you race and you're clean at the start, great first thing in the morning, and you run and you go through all of this mud, go through all of these obstacles, and you get to the end and you're dirty all over, but you're still the same person. Sometimes it's like that for a Christian. Some of you may be going through a road like that now. And you need to be cleansed. Some of you may just be standing in the mud, standing in the dirt. Or running, if you've ever seen the the beginning of chariots of fire as they're running down the beach. And they're all in these white outfits, these running shorts that are too short. And then this shirt, white shirt, I think it is. And they're running on the sand. We'll just say it's dirt. And the dirt's flying up and it's getting all over them. And they're running through. Calvin said, the term dirty feet is metaphorically applied to all the passions and cares by which we are brought into contact with the world. Thus, Christ always finds in us something to cleanse. Christian, you have been cleansed by the blood of the crucified one. Your standing before God does not change. Justification by faith alone. Positionally sanctified, continuing on in the sanctification process that we go through. But we are to rest in His finished work. We have remaining sin. We have the world. We have Satan that we face and his foes and his minions every single day of our life. We still have indwelling sin. We still get our feet dirty. Our hearts still will wonder. We still sin. We struggle. We fall down at times in the race and get more dirty. But we return back to the source of living water. Bringing our dirty feet to the loving Savior. And He washes us once again. Washes our feet. 1 John 7 and 8. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just as Jesus says to his disciples, you are clean, you are completely clean, but not all of you are clean. Not all of you are clean. What Jesus said then must be said today. Some here under the sound of my voice may look clean from the outside, but you're still filthy and dirty on the inside. Never been cleansed. Never been cleansed by Christ. But you can be washed clean at this moment, on this day, in your seat right now. You can be washed. 
You can be washed by the Lord, cleansed. 1 Corinthians tells us of this significant washing that the Lord does through horrific sinners to their lives. We do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Who's the kingdom of God for? It's for those who have been declared righteous by God. Do not be deceived. We live in a day of deception everywhere we turn. Scriptures tell us, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then the verse, such were some of you. And we look at verse 9 and 10, we say, that was me, O Lord, that was me. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So lost person in here, one who does not know Christ, maybe you're pretending you do. It does not matter how great the sin is in your life, the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit is much greater. In a moment, the Lord can wash away a lifetime of filthiness, a lifetime of sin, a lifetime of dirt. Call upon His name today. Trust in Christ today and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Let us pray. Lord, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ. He was clothed with humility. He conquers prideful hearts. Thank you for correction and instruction that you give us from your word. But thank you, God, that you have made us completely clean. Nothing we could do in and of ourselves. You are the one who washes sinners clean. And as we, as Christians, have remaining sin, we get dirt in our feet. Perhaps some in here, our feet are just filthy, but they know you. Lord, let them turn to you, living waters, to be washed again. You've cleansed them. They know you, but their feet are dirty. And Lord, for those in here who are still in their filthiness of sin, we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would wash them clean this day. They would realize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They realize that God sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life, that they would realize that Jesus bore the wrath of, of you, O Lord, O God, bore the wrath of the Father on that cross for sinners 
that would turn to him for sinners that would repent of their sin and place their trust in Christ. He died on that cross, willingly gave up his life. And he rose again on the third day and ascended on high. Oh Lord, let none leave here not knowing you. And let no Christian leave here not getting right with you again as we come to the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.